I don't know if you know this, but yeah, yeah, we don't, no head coverings. You're free to not wear a head covering. You're free to wear your hair in a ponytail, whether you're a guy or a girl. Uh, all sorts of freedom we have in Christ. That's good. Thank you, Flint, for the quick review of our sermon last week. Um, hey, uh, really quickly before we get into the message today, I don't know if you know this, but Tuesday is a major day in our nation as uh, there's national elections presently. Um, and there's just a lot of tumult and turmoil in our country, as many of you know. Um, and I, I want to say a couple, couple quick words, and then maybe let's take a moment as a church and pray for our nation like Paul calls us to, the Lord calls us to in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, so um, I, I don't know if you noticed, the church's paint is blue, right? And the church's chairs are red, right? And some of us in this church vote blue, and some of us in this church vote red, um, but that's not who we are, right? We're not defined by our political perspectives or opinions or even the political problems in the world around us. In fact, Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that we are citizens in where? In heaven, and we're eagerly awaiting a what? A new election? No, a savior from there, right? So our hearts are hanging on the hope of Jesus and his redemptive love and power, both in this moment and in the one in come, to come where we'll see him in his glorious appearing and we'll see ourselves and the world around us as it really is. And so we're not a blue church and we're not a red church, we're a purple church. And we're a purple church because we're made of blue people and red people who love each other. That's not really who we are, but in terms of color. But even for a better reason, it's because we don't follow an elephant or a donkey around. We follow the Savior who is the lamb and the lion. And we're not clothed with the colors of the world, but we're clothed with the royal color of Christ. And so like Christ our King, we're clothed in glorious eternal majesty, although we don't just yet know it. And so we're a purple church because we're defined by the reign of Christ who is our King. And so as we vote, we don't vote as ordinary citizens, do we? I hope not, at least. If we don't vote, I hope we don't vote as ordinary citizens, right? I was talking with a friend this week who was like, I don't vote. That confuses me, and I'm not comfortable with that. I'm like, that's okay. You have freedom in Christ to not vote, you know? And, and so I just want to pray for you all, pray for us, pray for our nation together, and then let's make sure that no matter what happens on Tuesday, um, that we still have our hope in Christ, right? Yeah, all right. Father, thank you for this nation. Uh, it has been a blessing to grow up here for me personally as an American. Uh, thank you for the privileges and the rights that we have here as citizens of this country. And thank you also, Father, for our dual citizenship. It, it allows us to step back from our earthly citizenship and think differently about the things happening around us. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we vote. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see candidates for who they are, see issues for what they are, and help us to vote according to your principles and your promises. Lord, for the ways that politics have gotten us quirky, twisted, with friction with those around us, Father, would you bring healing to our hearts so that we don't worry, that we're not preoccupied about these things more than we are about you and your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would bring a heavenly mindset to us today and this Tuesday. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be people who walk as not of this world, but of you. And we pray, Father, for our nation, that there would be peace again among us so that the gospel can be spread. And we pray, Father, that our hands would be making the world a better place, not making war 
that our words would be blessing and encouraging, not tearing down, and that we would be people who are marked by the hope of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. How many of you like potlucks or buffets? Some of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I do too, um, but I have this problem. I get this plate, and there are all of these dishes, and then I go through, and I see something that I think I probably want, so I take that, and I do that a few more times, and then I get to this dish, and it's actually the dish I really wanted, and I wish that I could hit the reset button, and I could put all those other things back and just fill my plate with the favorite thing that I just found at the end of the potluck line. Has this happened to you before? Yeah, some of you have probably wised up, so you peruse before you go. I'm not like that. Still, I know it's going to happen, but I'm walking down, and I just can't resist getting a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then I get to the thing, and I'm, I'm sad because I, I miss out on the thing that I want to be filled with the most. Well, this isn't just a, a literal potluck problem. In Corinth, it was a, a relational potluck problem. See, some people were getting to the potluck early, the agape meal, the love feast that they had, and they were filling themselves up on things that were not the best. And so they didn't have room for the thing which is the best, which is the love of Christ that is being born in his people as he gets together as they get together with him, pardon me. And so instead of having a feast of God's love, the people who were there, some of them were full of food, and some of them were empty of food, but all of them were not experiencing the love of Christ as they came together. And so when their church should have been a feast of God's love, there was actually a famine of God's love in their midst. Now sadly, that can happen in every church. I don't think it's happening in this church, but it can happen in every church. And it's because that we tend to forget what is most important as we come together. And we start to elevate other things that get in the way of our true fellowship with Christ and our true fellowship with each other. And so today we're going to learn how to prevent that from happening in our church family today. And maybe if you're visiting us, this might be a blessing to your church family wherever you're from. But mostly I hope today that you encounter the love of Jesus as we speak. We, we just celebrated this table, right? This, this Lord's table, this communion, or some people call it Eucharist, whatever your tradition is. But it's this time of meditating on Jesus' love for us, on his gift of life to us, that he took our place dying on the cross for our sins so that we can have fellowship with the Father and eternal life. And so we're going to center up on this table, like Paul's message does today, but we're going to think of how this is a feast of love and how every time we gather, it's supposed to be a feast of love. So here's the big idea today. I'm not um, able to, we'll, re we'll reset, there we go. So uh, the big idea today is the grace of Jesus is a feast of love for famished hearts. The grace of Jesus is a feast of love for famished hearts. Let's keep that in mind as we read through the text. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who, those who have nothing? 
What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you eat, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. It will give, I will give instruction about the other matters whenever I come. All right, so 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Uh, so th again, this is a chunk of the book of Corinthians where Paul is talking to the church about their public worship gatherings. If you remember, there was a, a letter to Paul and Paul had other issues that were brought to him by a household in Corinth who was saying, hey, I think our church is a little bit sick. And, and the Corinthian elders, they wrote a letter and asked some questions. And so Paul is basically addressing a huge amount of issues with this church body in Corinth. In the first part of the church, Paul was dealing, or first part of the letter, Paul was dealing with Jesus and the unity that Jesus calls us to have. And then after that, he was talking with them about using their freedoms to bless others and serve others and glorify God. And now finally, Paul is talking about issues that have to do with their worship gathering. Now, last week, we started talking about the easiest issue of the lot, which is head coverings and who gets to have long hair in church, right? And that went really well. And we talked about our freedom in Christ. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to listen online or grab a CD after church. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun and informative message. And this week, we're talking about the Lord's table, and we're talking about love feasts or agape feasts. Now, in Corinth, they would have celebrated this differently than we do. Uh, they didn't have church buildings to go to on Sunday. They also then weren't confused about the idea that I'm going to church uh, versus I am the church, right? We often say I'm going to church, uh, but that's really a terrible phrase. It's actually I'm going to gather with my church family and we're going to worship together uh, in the building that we built to do that in, right? This building just serves a purpose. Uh, it's, a, it's a place where we can all gather and worship. But at that point in time in the church history, the church didn't have the resources or even the desire to do that. Instead, they gathered in each other's homes, and often they gathered in wealthy people's homes for their Sunday gatherings, which meant that each church cluster would have had between like 8 and 30 people in it, depending upon the size of the house, and it would be rare that everybody could get together. So maybe the church in Corinth had three or 400 people in it, but they probably would have been scattered across 15 to 20 homes across the city of Corinth instead of gathering together every Sunday. Now, they did gather together on Sunday, and they did so in honor of the resurrection. I know that the Jewish pattern was to gather on the Sabbath day, but the early church shifted that quickly. Additionally, there were no days off. Uh, a day off 
Sunday being a day off is a Christian tradition, and it was brought into our culture over time. How many, of you, how many of you remember growing up when you couldn't go to the store on Sunday? You couldn't get gas on Sunday, things like that. I was always confused by that as a kid, and then my parents were like, well, it's because of Jesus. And now, is anything closed on Sunday? Just Chick-fil-A, right? And that's it. I mean, like, literally, that's the only business that I'm aware of that regularly closes on Sunday. I'm sure there are little ones around the nation that also do that, uh, but we don't honor Jesus in that way anymore as a culture. That, that's okay. That's the culture's choice, right? That doesn't have to dictate our choices, uh, but Sunday was a chief day for the church to gather in worship, so much so that it impacted the Western world long term. Okay, so the church gathered differently, and uh, they also, just like us, they mixed in worldly issues in their church gathering. In other words, they weren't just coming out of a pure devotion to Christ, but sometimes the, the way that they were trained by the world to live impacted their gathering together even more than their discipleship or their love of Jesus. And so Paul is correcting a lot of these things. Uh, I want to review one thing as we go into this from two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about three principles when it came to living in Christian freedom. The first principle is the prophet principle, the second principle is the people principle, and the third principle is the purpose principle. Now, the, the prophet principle is um, what can I do, how can my choices lead to good to other people? So if I have an opportunity in life, rather than considering what's good for me, I should consider first what is good for the people around me. How can I do good to them first? Just like Jesus did good to others first rather than himself, I want to do that same thing. And often in Corinth, they were concerned with their own elevation. They were moving up in society. They were the upper middle class culture of the Greco-Roman world. And so they were always concerned with what makes me look good, what is better for me. But Jesus calls us to do good for other people first. And the second principle is very similar, but it's how can I use my choices, the opportunities I have in life, not just to bring good to other people, but to build them up in love, which means that I need to know them. I need to know their hearts, the things that they value, the things that are important to them, so that I can connect with them in the way that I live, in the way that I speak, so that I can build them up in love. Uh, recently, I've connected with a Christian brother, and I can tell that he spent most of his life thinking about this principle in one way or another, because every time I hang out with him, he just naturally is doing things that encourage other people, that build them up. I've known him for about three months, and in that time, I've probably spent 20 to 30 hours with him, maybe a little bit more, and I've never heard him complain about anything. I've never heard him tear anybody down. I've only heard him point out good in other people and be thankful to the Lord for the things that he's seen. And it blows me away. I'm like, how does he do this so naturally? He does this because he's prioritized this principle. He's trained himself on how to speak to others, on the opportunities that he sees in life to use them to do good to other people. And then finally, it's the purpose principle, which is kind of this big overriding idea that everybody who believes in Jesus would benefit from placing over their life. How can my freedom... How can the opportunities that I have every day bring glory to God, show people who Jesus is, what he's like, help people know who Jesus is? And we connected this idea to Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world, right? And he says, therefore, don't hide your good works, but instead let your light shine so that all people might see who you are and how you live and glorify your Father in heaven according to the glory that they see coming out of you. 
And so these three principles we need to keep in mind. And quite frankly, if the Corinthians knew these three principles, I don't think this section of the letter would exist. And so as we go through this section of the letter, I don't think that Paul is leaving these ideas behind. Instead, I think that each section that we go through, he's applying these principles to the very things that they're struggling with. So they had issues with the way that they celebrated the Lord's table, and they had issues with the way that they did potlucks, okay? That's essentially what an agape feast is. It's a love feast, but it was a potluck where everyone came together, and they lived in the intentional agape love of Jesus towards each other, okay? So let's, uh, let's get to know this a little bit more as we unpack the passage. Uh, first, Paul says in verse 17, he says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Some of your translations might say something like, it would be better if you didn't ever do this, right? The thing that you're doing that should be good is actually causing harm. Have you ever gotten a creepy hug from someone? Where like at the end of the hug, you're like, I think I need a shower, at least emotionally. Like I'm feeling not so good inside. That was a bad touch. I don't want that hug ever again. Uh, this was a bad thing, but it was supposed to be a good thing. Paul's saying, I can't praise you in this because the way that you come together in your love feast has nothing to do with love at all. In fact, it's the opposite of love. It is pride and greed. It's selfishness right from the get-go. Now, you remember last week, Paul actually commended the Corinthians in their use of head coverings, right? And they're, they're, they're praising and they're prophesying publicly together. And, and so they, he started from a position of strength. He's saying, you're doing a good job of this. But then immediately afterwards, he's like, hey, guys, you're, this next thing, you're doing it way wrong. And he's being very, very corrective here. So he says, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and I in part believe it, because indeed it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, you're doing something else altogether. Now, these verses are a little bit tricky for us to understand. Do they mean that God uses hardship and divisions in church to purify the church and to make those who are genuinely spiritually mature stand out? Or is Paul as a leader frustrated with this church family who should know what the love of Jesus looks like and live together in the love of Jesus, but instead they aren't? They're doing something else all together. And so is Paul using sarcasm here? In other words, is he saying, hey, you know, it is so appropriate that you guys have divisions in your church family. I am glad that you finally figured out that some of you are too good for others among you and that you separate those who are better from those who are not better, right? Those who are worse. And so some people say it's this way, that hardship and divisions show who's spiritually mature in the church. And some people say that Paul's using sarcasm. I tend to land in this camp because I don't think that division brings health into the church or highlights good things at all. In fact, Paul is saying the divisions that are here are worthless. It'd be better if you never got together than to live this way, church, is what Paul is saying. So instead, when you come together, no matter what you label it, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's something of your own making. Now, this is for that church, right? I'm not speaking this over our church. I'm just saying, hey, this is the meaning of the letter as we're walking through this. And so 
then Paul continues, for at the meal, each one of you eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. In other words, none of you are commendable here. Paul's saying, no, no one stands out. This is just a terrible situation. So remember a few minutes ago when I said that the church operated differently and they gathered in people's homes to worship? Well, who do you think has big houses where lots of people can gather together? Wealthy people. That's right, people with money. Now, you wouldn't believe that people 2,000 years ago fell into the trap of making the rich people the leaders in the church because they were important, didn't, would you? They did, they did. They just, they had the same human patterns that we do. Oh, you have money, you dress well, you speak well, you must be very important. Let's put you in charge of the church. And so these people who had the houses to host the meals were also the leaders in the church. They're the very ones who were purporting that they were better leaders than other leaders. We see this is a huge problem in First and Second Corinthians. They thought that the wealthy people who were wealthy were wealthy because they were better and so God blessed them and so if you wanted to be a wealthy person you had to be a spiritually healthy person and so obviously if you had wealth then you were healthier spiritually and if you lacked wealth well then God couldn't bless you because you just weren't healthy enough to receive the blessings of God and so their spirituality was all mixed up does the outer garments of a person does does wealth make you more spiritually you know if i if i wore a, a five thousand dollar custom suit to church on sunday would i be a a more respectable pastor no i'd be actually a really foolish pastor in this community right like who does that guy think he is like why is he dressing that way like we we log and we fish and we retire here no one wants to dress like that but the corinthians they were they were confused they gathered together on Sunday, which was good, but the wealthy people didn't have to work as hard as the laborers and the slaves in the church, right? Because there were slaves in Corinth, generally indentured servants, but still slaves. And so those wealthy people would get together early and they'd begin relaxing and lounging and celebrating, right? Have you ever celebrated with your friends? A little pregame before the show? couple extra drinks before everybody else gets there to just relax and have a good time you've worked hard you deserve it well that's what they were doing the wealthy leaders of the church were getting together in each other's homes before church and they were sitting around and they started to eat and drink before everybody else arrived and then when the laborers arrived and when the slaves arrived they would get to the party they'd get to the celebration and there'd be no food left and there'd be no drink left because the wealthy people consumed it all. Not only that, but the way that these Roman homes were set up, there were usually two rooms for receiving people. There was a large room. It was like 10 meters by 5 meters. And, and this was their dining room slash living room. And they'd often have couches and, and, and cushions for people to lounge on. Remember, they didn't sit at tables to eat. They lounged. And so there'd be lounging space for 10 to 15 people in these larger rooms. And then they would have an atrium or a vestibule or a foyer, you might call it. And the rest of the people would come in there. And that would be like dirt floor or stone floor. And there'd be sitting and standing room only on those floors. So it wouldn't be very comfortable. So not only were the wealthy people eating all the food 
and drinking all the drink, they were also taking the most comfortable and therefore most important positions in this honor-shame culture. Remember, it's important to be honorable in the Corinthians' mindset from, from the city they lived in. And so the wealthy would be honorable, eating the best food, drinking the best drink, seating in the best places, and then their brothers and sisters in Christ would come in and they'd give them the leftovers and the crumbs and the worst place to sit. And Paul's saying, the way you gather together, this doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. This has everything to do with your social norms. You're not following Jesus. You're following the culture around you. He's saying, quit it. Quit following the culture around you. Instead, you should be waiting for everybody else to arrive. If you're too hungry to wait, get a snack before you come. If you're too thirsty to not drink, get a drink before you come. Wait for your brothers and sisters in Christ and stop acting like you're more important than they are. Recognize that in Christ we are all equal, right? Because in Christ there aren't rich people and poor people. There aren't slaves and there aren't free. There aren't retired people and working people. There's just believers and followers of Jesus who are all servants of Jesus, working together to bring him glory in the midst of the life that they're living. And so Paul is appealing to them and saying, hey, the way you're gathering together isn't showing integrity with the person of Jesus and the work he did. Instead, it's demonstrating that you are broken and sick spiritually, and Jesus wants healing for you. And that's really what the meal is about. And so then Paul reviews. He says, For I, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember in chapter 10, when Paul was dealing with the divisions, Paul said, think of the body of Jesus. Think of how Jesus said that he broke the bread so that he could be broken and we could be made whole. Think about how the bread is made from wheat that is scattered across a broad field and then brought together and kneaded by the maker to be one loaf. Paul is using the picture of the loaf in communion to say, you are one body brought together. Christ was fractured so that you could be made whole. Christ was crushed so that you could be healed. Don't let your community be broken apart by the things that are happening among you. Instead, let Jesus make you whole. Let Jesus keep you together. Don't let any little division get in the way of you loving each other. And so Paul is reminding them that Jesus did work before that's designed to impact them now in the midst of the things that they're going through as a church family. Don't forget what was done on your behalf before you even started getting together. God planned in the past for you to be a church family in wholeness and love. And so let the love of Christ reign in you. Be like the bread. Gather together. Don't settle for crummy gatherings. Keep it together, church family. And then Paul continues. He says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, Paul reminds them of what was done in the past on their behalf, that Christ announced a new covenant with anybody who would enter into that covenant. Do you guys know what covenant is? Covenant's like a $64, theological, $64 theological word. If you're not familiar, it just means promise, but it's a big promise. It's like a contract, and the contract has a cost to it. 
Now, the contracts that God makes with us, the cost is life. So, in other words, if one party breaks the covenant, there will be a life that is given to pay for the breaking of that promise. Now, when God makes a covenant, you can read this over and over again. The Abrahamic covenant, God is the one who said, my life is on the line, not your life, Abraham. And the same thing Jesus says in this new covenant. He says, this new covenant, I'm paying for. I'm going to be broken like this loaf of bread. My blood is going to be poured out like this cup of wine. I'm paying for this covenant to be made. If you break it, it's my life on the line, not yours. And then you know what he does? He puts his life on the line. He prepays the penalty. Isn't that wild? He knows that we're going to be imperfect at keeping our promise to follow him, our promise to love him when we believe in him. And so he says, it's okay, I'm going to pay in advance. Isn't that an awesome thing? That God knew your weakness, your frailty, and chose to pay for your sin before you could even think of it, imagine it, and plan it? or accidentally fall into it, I think it's absolutely awesome. Have you ever been out to eat with someone and, and a stranger pays for your meal? You like go to pay and, and someone's like, hey, it's already been paid for. Well, who, who paid for it? I don't know, some guy, he just paid for your meal. He didn't leave you a note or anything. You're like, wow, a free meal, that's, that's amazing. Even more so, Jesus paid for your life. Before you were even born, he redeemed you. He loved you enough to stand in your place so that you could stand in his place. Isn't that awesome? It's totally awesome. And so Paul's saying this past plan brings present grace. God's work in the past means that there's grace for you in this exact moment. We sang a song during our worship that started how great the chasm that lay between us, right? That there was this huge gap between us and God but that God was so gracious that when we called out, he came and he rescued us from across that chasm, right? And so Paul's not just saying there's grace for you, but that you need to have grace for one another. See, in Corinth, it wasn't good if you were wealthy to hang out with a poor person. If you were a business owner, you didn't hobnob with the employees, and you definitely didn't break bread with slaves because it would dishonor you. But Paul is saying, Jesus who is the king of the universe, the creator of everything, came down and became like you so that you could hobnob with him. Do you think that if God has that much grace for you, you might be able to muster up enough grace to hang out with someone who you're afraid to hang out with, to forgive someone that you are offended by or hurt by? I mean, if God has grace for you, why would you withhold grace from someone else? Paul is asking. The Holy Spirit is asking. And then Paul gives this warning to the Corinthian leaders. He says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of Jesus. Let a person examine himself in this way, and, and in this way let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So Paul is saying, Hey, Corinthian church, the way you're doing this is so significant that it's impacting you physically because you're receiving discipline from the Lord. Now, we have turned this a little bit, and we've made this about self-examination for our sin. That's okay. It's okay to do that. Marcus led us in that today, and that's a good exercise, and I would commend you not just to do that once a month with us, but every day. Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, 
If there's something that I'm doing that is unloving, that doesn't live according to those three principles, the the people principle, the profit principle, the purpose principle, would you show that to me so that I can have life walking with you and your power and your anointing and your truth and your blessing? I want to know you more, and so I need to live in a direction that pursues you. This wasn't quite about that. He's actually saying, when you don't have this fellowship meal, when you don't take the Lord's table in a way that recognizes that Jesus paid for our sins so that we could all be unified, when you separate based on social class and wealth, you're so in the face of God that he's going to discipline you. Instead of leading people in grace and in truth and in love, you're leading people in pride, Corinthian leaders. And as a result, you're going to war with God. Now, God loves you enough to not go to war with you, but he will discipline you. See, a loving father disciplines his kids, amen? And so he's saying, Corinthian leaders, because you have been at war with God, he's disciplining you. And some of you, Corinthian church, have fallen asleep because of this. Now, he's not saying they fell asleep during church, right? They didn't stay up way too late watching reruns of MASH the night before or checking their social media accounts. Instead, he's saying they died. So the Lord disciplined them so that they might be preserved spiritually and not fall into this trap and for the sake of the church's health. And so Paul says, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and have fallen asleep. He's saying you're violating Christ by hurting Christ's family. You're not just hurting the people, you're hurting Jesus and you're at war with him, so stop it. He says, if we were judging ourselves properly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we might not be condemned at the world, uh, with the world. And he gives some very practical advice. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to, to eat, welcome one another. In other words, be hospitable. Make your love feasts really be about love. Let it not just be about fried chicken or whatever you're serving that day. Instead, let it be about Jesus bringing you together. Make sure everybody has enough to eat. Don't worry about yourself first. Worry about other people first. It's such a huge priority. You know, when my wife and I got married, we had a reception a little bit away from where we got married. We got married in a park in Cannon Beach. It was really wonderful and romantic. Um, But we said, hey, family, um, we're going to meet you in an hour. We have pictures to take, and then we're going to walk down the beach to the place that we're having the reception. So we'll see you guys at about 1.30. There's just light refreshments at the reception. So if you're hungry, maybe go get lunch and then join us over there. You've all got the address on the program. And so we left, and we got our pictures taken, and then we were walking down the beach, and we got to the reception. We walked in to find all of our family and friends were in the house already, so no one listened, and they all ate the reception. Like, they just, there was no food. All the smoked salmon was gone, all the cheese was gone, all the fruit was gone, and they were holding the knife and server for the cake. They were like, oh good, you're finally here, let's finish the wedding reception. And we're like, uh... This was a party for us, guys. <laughs> you just had a party for y'all. Like, what are you doing? Like, they, they took the reception for our wedding and they made it into a family reunion, I guess. I don't know. They did it wrong. But it just, it just didn't feel like love to us. 
we could do the same thing as a church family. We can, we can make this about me instead of us, and as a result, we can do it wrong. We can make it about our favorite songs and our seats in church or whatever, our favorite things, but God is saying elevate the love of Jesus first. And so then Paul gives a, another piece of practical advice. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. That's pretty practical, right? I like how Paul breaks it down to a practical thing. Hey, pack a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, okay? So that you can love other people more than your hunger. But there are other things that will impact us as we start to apply it to us. And then he says, I will give instruction about the other matters whenever I come. Which is just a good reminder that we're receiving like one part of a telephone call. Have you ever heard your friend or your spouse talking on the phone and you only hear their conversation? You're like, I can't wait to hear about the rest of this phone call because that was really weird to listen to. I feel that way about the book of Corinth. I'm like, I wish I knew what they were writing to Paul and saying to Paul that was bringing this about. Unfortunately, we don't know all, know all of that. Now, let's be honest. We don't have the same social barriers in our church family as the Corinthian church is dealing with. We don't live in an honor-shame culture where if you live in Long Beach, you don't associate with people in Ocean Park, or you live in Surfside, so you don't like people who are from Sunset Sands, amen? Like, we just see ourselves as equal, no matter our socioeconomic status, I hope. And if you don't, see me after church, I'll fight you in the parking lot, and we'll settle. No, I will talk with you, and we'll get that straightened out, because in Christ, we are all equal. But we do encounter other barriers into feasting on God's love. You know, it's, it's really sad. It's not just socioeconomic status that gets in the way of feasting on God's love. And so I want to talk about barriers that as a pastor I've found that are common for people between them and really experiencing and expressing the love of Jesus in their life. Uh, so let's keep barriers from, keep, let's stop barriers from keeping us from this feast of love. Uh, the first barrier to feasting on love is religion. It's religion. Now, this might sound weird because uh, there's, two, there's two sides of religion. There's a side of religion which makes church always high and orthodox, and then there's a side of church that in order to get away from that orthodoxy denies the spiritual mystery that it is for us to all gather together, for us to contemplate the body of Christ and the blood of Christ being given for us. And so sometimes religion tends to make the Lord's table and church into a ritual where there's right words to say and right prayers to pray and right songs to sing. And if you don't do it right, well, then you're wrong and uh, someone else should lead it. But then there's another side of this where it just becomes a simple memorial. And what matters is that we just remember, you know, and it be basically becomes like any other memorial, something that we look at occasionally and we have feelings of sentiment, and we have feelings of love, and we feel better for that. It feels nice to be sentimental, and it's nice to feel loving in that sentimental way, but we are so much better than a Benny Goodman song in a sentimental mood, right? You can YouTube that later. Uh, instead, we want to overcome religion by overcoming memorialism and ritual. We need to talk to Jesus, and we need to connect to his body. So that means as we engage in the Lord's table, it's not just about juice, and it's not just about the cup, and it's not just about listening to Marcus or Steve or Kelly or me or Chuck. It's about you having a conversation with Jesus. That's why when we take communion together, there's pauses. There's silence. These aren't moments where we want you to feel guilty or rake yourself over the coals. 
Jesus died so that you don't have to experience shame and condemnation anymore. Jesus died so you can have fellowship with the Father. So take that time and talk personally to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for loving me. I am so overwhelmed by your love. I remember the first moment that I believed and how good and powerful you seem. And I know you're even greater than that. And I just want to be close to you in this time. Thank you for being close to me. But don't just talk to Jesus. Connect with the body. Recognize that you're not the only one doing that. That you're in a whole room of people who are doing that. And now there are probably people at home who are doing that. And not just us, but there are people who started doing this 24 hours ago in Asia when they had their church gathering. So that you are part of a global church of people who all connect with Christ and therefore have a common connection with each other. I was reading a theologian this week and he said, the church is actually a group of enemies who found out that they could be friends because of Jesus, right? That naturally, the church is not people who would all come together, but instead, they're supernaturally together because of the love of Christ. The next barrier is distraction. How many of you have one of these in your pocket? How many of you have one of these that isn't just in your pocket, but now beeps in your head and no one else can hear it? Yeah, we live in a world of distractions. We live in a world of things that ping us and beep us and buzz us and reach out to us constantly. We live in a world where we drive down the road and glowing signs flash at us in the night. We live in a world where our dashboards are now infotainment centers. There are so many things that grab our attention. Humans in this culture are plagued by anxiety, not so much because we're actually anxious about things, life is really comfortable, but because there are so many things that are beeping and poking and grabbing and pulling that we are all frazzled almost all of the time because our minds are broken up in our attention. It's hard for us to focus on any single thing. How many of you have engaged in second screening this week? That means that you're in front of the TV and it's going, and then you're also using this device or your Kindle or your laptop. This means that you're so trained in fracturing your mind that you do it automatically. That means that when you come to church, when you're celebrating the Lord's table, your mind is like a hiker in the midst of August in Kentucky. There are so many flies and mosquitoes bugging at, buzzing at you that inside you're doing this, all while trying to focus on Jesus, right? You're like, Jesus, thank you for my socks in the dryer. Help me to fold them when I get home. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for helping me to remember the cross and to call my mother. Jesus, the hangnail on my left big toe is really annoying. And thank you that I have heaven with you forever, right? There are so many things going on inside that it's hard for us to focus on Jesus. Well, there's only one person who's going to solve this problem for you. And in this case, it's actually you. Jesus will guide you and strengthen you as you seek to solve this problem, but you need to learn to overcome distraction by practicing memorization and meditation on the scriptures. This is a very big deal for us. I think often the church's love is weak because our minds are weak, because we're so concerned and so distracted for the world around us that we forget what is most important. When, when we lived in the Portland, Oregon area, after church, the party was always at Costco. 
and there were free samples and cheap hot dogs for everybody who was just at second service with us. And that meant by the time I got through Costco, I didn't remember anything from the sermon except for the word amen at the end of the prayer, right? It's because I was distracted in my mind by what was coming up next. Don't kid yourself into thinking that just because we don't have a Costco that we don't do the same thing because El Compadre and the Seahawks and your knitting project are all calling you right now, right? And it's hard to focus on this thing at hand. But I have good news. All of that anxiety demonstrates that you have an incredibly powerful mind. How many of you think it's going to be hard for you to memorize scripture? Man, you have so many things memorized. You have so many things memorized. The only barrier between you and knowing even just one verse of the Bible that's meaning to you, meaningful to you is your time and your attention. So maybe you start with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I, why? He makes me lie down in, in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters because he restores my soul, right? Amen. So maybe you need to take a moment and review some of God's truth so that rather than wondering about your Facebook notifications, you wonder where your shepherd is going to lead you. And then you meditate on that. That's choosing to focus on the truth of God over and over again. Guess what? Your soul needs that. Those are the cool waters. Those are the green pastures for you. Next, there's the barrier of shame. I think this is one of the greatest barriers that I see to Christians experiencing God's love, expressing it to others, having their hearts be satisfied in the grace of Jesus, this issue of shame. Many of us grew up in families where guilt trips were more common than family vacations, where you were packing up emotional baggage together once again because you forgot to do the dishes or didn't get an A plus and instead an A minus, which means that you're predisposed to shame. When you make a mistake, you're your greatest critic. You do it in a way to defend yourself from the criticism that you fear is coming from others, but that also means that you think that the criticism is going to come from your heavenly father first, doesn't it? Because it's his voice that calms our shame and heals our hearts. For those of you who are not familiar with walking in shame, God bless you. I am so thankful, and I don't want you to start to experience shame, but if you have been under that heavy blanket of shame, the darkness and the depth of the hurt that you feel is probably more than you share with others on a regular basis. And I want you to know that I prayed for you specifically about this issue this week as we were approaching this time. Shame is something that takes time to recover from. It's like having a congenital defect in a leg and having it fixed. You have to learn to walk right. You need to learn to stand upright. You're used to being crooked and bent over with a strange weight. You need to let Jesus lift that from you. Overcome shame. Marinate in the love and grace of Jesus for you. Man, I remember when I started to overcome from shame, God would highlight verses in the Bible over and over again. One of them was in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, and Jesus preached peace to those who were far away. When I feel ashamed, I feel so far from God. I feel like how could he ever love me? Why would he ever choose me? I don't deserve him. Friends, Jesus doesn't love us because we deserve it. He loves us because he desires to love us and he desires us. And that's the best kind of love because it's a love that never goes away. That's what agape love is. It's a volitional love. It's the love of choice. 
It's given because of the giver, not the recipient. And when you're stuck in a cycle of shame, you feel like you have to earn God's love, and you don't. So you need to soak in grace. Jesus doesn't care about your past sin. He doesn't care about your future sin. He cares about your heart. He cares about you and you knowing his goodness and his love. Let grace marinate your heart to being soft again. Let love overcome your fear of God's judgment and condemnation. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. No condemnation for you. Not any. And there's nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God for you that is in Christ Jesus. But you need to own that and hold on to that for you. You need to let it set you free, okay? And then finally, this is a new barrier, and it's growing in our church, maybe specifically here, but in the nation's church, and the world around us. Hurt and hate, and hate's little cousin, you know, like Al Pacino, say hello to my little friend, despising. Despising is when we hate someone so much that we make them a tiny or non-existent person in our heart and mind. We don't have anything to do with them anymore. And it's so far from the love of Christ that this would exist in any church family. When we decide to despise someone, we say that that person doesn't matter. How many people did Jesus die for? All the people, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the whole world that he sent his only son to die for us. John 2.12, he's the propitiating sacrifice, the atonement, not just for our sin, but for all sin, everyone's sin, for all time. And so when we let despising take the place of love, we're making the love of Christ so small. Now, we don't usually start despising on our own. Usually it starts with hurt. Hurt can be so hard to deal with. We love being the victim in our society. It gives us currency and power. Victims have rights. Victims aren't just victims, they're survivors. They're, they're better than the rest of us, right? In our culture, at least. And there's a place where we do that so they can find healing. We're trying to elevate them from their lowered place, but elevating them doesn't mean making them a hero because they're a victim. It means saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. I've been hurt too. I love you still. You're going to be okay. Not you're better off because you were hurt by somebody else but there's restoration despite the fact that you've been hurt. And so we need to heal from our hurts if we're going to overcome our hate. This is not an easy road. If you've been hurt and you're falling into hate or despising someone, it takes time to heal. But you can overcome your hurt and your hate. Invite Jesus into your specific hurt and apply the salve of agape love to your hate. Now, these words aren't accidental. It's not just enough to say, Jesus, there's hurt in my heart and I want you to heal it. It takes more than the Holy Spirit's kiss to heal deep boo-boos. It takes time and it takes companionship with the Lord. There's this thing that happens when we get hurt. The two halves of our brain neurologically separate a little bit. They stop communicating so well anymore. And we start to live in the emotional and illogical part of our brain. And we lose the ability to express the feelings and the hurts that are happening. And we get lost in the hurt. And it feels like you're in a storm cloud of pain. 
It's frustrating and you can become depressed and stuck there over time. This is happening neurologically, biologically, physically in your brain when you experience hurt. But God has given humans a special ability to overcome that hurt. That is the use of words. When we express the hurt, it reconnects the two halves of our brain and it brings healing and unity. And I think that Christians have a unique opportunity in overcoming that hurt, not just to express the hurt in singing a Rage Against the Machine song or writing a poem, but instead by expressing those feelings to the Lord. Lord, it really hurt deeply when this happened. I felt abandoned by you when you let this person say this to me or do this thing to me. I felt forgotten by you, Father, and I just need your nearness. I feel so angry, God, that this thing went on. God, sometimes I just really want to hurt them back so that they know how I felt. God, that person is a... Because when you express it to him, there's healing. Now, I'm not encouraging you to sin or to rage out on your heavenly Father, but I am telling you that His love is big enough to handle you if you do. And I am telling you that the way to healing is to invite Jesus into that pain, invite Him into that hurt specifically, expressing it in your words to Him alone in the midst of that. And then you'll feel the start of healing those hidden hurts. Now, hatred is different because hatred isn't just anger, but it's anger that's been allowed to become a system of relating to another person. And there's a hardness and a bitterness that enters into hatred. Hatred means that the door is closed in your heart to reconciliation and love. It doesn't just say I'm angry, but I'm open for God to move in this situation. It says I'm angry and I'm never wanting to deal with it again, right? Now, there's obviously degrees of that hurt that moves to hatred. And so some hatred's really hard. It's almost impossible to deal with this. You probably have people like this in your life who will never talk again for some reason. And you're like, if you could just let down your guard and be humble for a little bit, you'd discover the love is still there. But sometimes hatred's really easy to go get over. And it just requires a cup of coffee and an honest conversation. But either way, it takes agape love. Remember a, a few minutes ago, I said agape love is God's volitional love for you. It means he wills to love. And we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit has poured out the agape love of Christ into our hearts, which means that we have the ability to apply that love to other people ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Amen? And sometimes we need to do that, church family. Sometimes, family, we need to say, I'm going to die to myself in this moment. I'm going to forgive this other person because Christ forgave me. That's Paul's main argument for forgiveness in the New Testament, by the way. Not because they deserve it, but because you didn't deserve it either. And God still chose to forgive you. Therefore, forgive as you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Not because you're better than them. Not because it's even going to make it better. Because it puts you in alignment with Jesus first and foremost. And it makes you not just a recipient, but a generator of the love of Christ. In the world around you. Church is designed to be a place of healing and hope. Fellowship meals are designed to be a place of love, not just sitting with your favorite people, but expressing the love of Christ to each other as a church family. 
communion or the Lord's table is supposed to be a place of thanksgiving where we encounter the grace of Christ. But too often we allow barriers to get in the way of the feast of love that God has planned for us, church family. And we need to tear down those barriers. So where are you today? Are you in a place where you need to overcome your religion? Do you have to let go of the distractions and learn to focus on Jesus again? Is there something that you're ashamed of that you need to let go of and say, God, would you define me by your love? Is there hurt and hate brewing in your midst so you don't know the love of Jesus anymore? I guarantee this. When you let Jesus into those barriers, when you say, God, tear down the walls that I have built up between me and you, your heart will be satisfied in the love of Christ like you never have been before. And your church gathering personally will turn into a feast of love. See, the grace of Jesus is a feast of love for famished hearts. Is your heart famished because of one of these barriers? Are you hungry for the love of Christ in a deep way? Then take time today and start tearing down the barrier that's keeping you from knowing your heavenly Father as deeply as he wants to know you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my church family here. Lord, you know each of them and you love them with a greater measure than they can ever hope to know or even imagine. Father, today you're exposing things in our midst that are keeping us from encountering your love and your goodness, your faithfulness. Lord, would you show us those barriers, those things that we're holding on to that are keeping us from feasting. Lord, some of our hearts are famished. We're parched. And we know that the thing that will satisfy us is you and you alone. So Lord, would you be with us as we see these things? Would you help us to tear them down? And Father, beyond that, would you cause this church's family gatherings, whether it's in homes or the building or coffee shops here, to just ooze the love of Jesus, to be saturated with you and your goodness, so that it's not about the meal or the time together, but instead of that, the Savior who satisfies us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.